If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We'll be in Luke chapter 6. We have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And last week and this week we see uh, a similar theme, and that is opposition to Jesus from the religious establishment. Last week it was on questions of fasting. And today we see that he has opposition when it comes to the way he practices the Sabbath. So these are not people foreign to Jesus. These are people that he knows. They are his kin according to the flesh. They are fellow Jews. And yet when they see the piety, the public piety of Jesus, it is out of step with how they think life should be lived. And therefore, conflict is created. It is an opportunity for Jesus to reveal who he is to his people, but also to us today. So I invite you to follow along as I read Luke 6, verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of God. The scenes in this passage are bound up with an important part of Israel's life, understanding and keeping the Sabbath command. Why was this so important for Israel? It was important because it was part of the law given to them by God, the very essence of their relationship to Him. In fact, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, a kind of overarching summary of the entirety of the law and what it was meant to convey is the command to keep the Sabbath holy. Therefore, obeying this command along with the rest of the law was an expression of Israel's faith in and love for God. One's regard for the Sabbath was a reflection of one's regard for God Himself. But what did it mean to keep the Sabbath? On its simplest terms, it simply meant to rest, to take that day to rest from normal life and work. In Exodus 20, God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Now I know it's hard for us to imagine just how good that should have sounded to Israel because we have lived all of our life with something called the weekend. But we have to understand that the weekend is in fact a very modern Western creation. It is not something that has existed for all time, for all peoples and all cultures. In fact, even in Jesus' day, the Romans thought that Jews were lazy. Why? Because they stopped working for one day a week. They, they stopped working on the Sabbath. And so they were derided. What do you mean take a day off work? Why would anybody do that? Jews must be lazy. And so... Even then, it was a foreign idea to pagan cultures, and yet God gives the Sabbath, this day of rest, to His people as a gift. The same God who established work as a good thing, yes, I know we may not want to hear that, but work came before the fall. Adam was commanded to tend the garden, therefore work is an honorable thing, a good and godly thing to do. That same God also says rest is good. Rest is is good and honorable and necessary. Work isn't the end all of our existence. So God gave clear instructions about what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath to His covenant people Israel. You'll notice that it's not even just the Israelites, it's the foreigners that are living among them. They must stop working too. Even the animals are told, no work, rest. Even the animals are put out to pasture and said, go have fun today. Don't do any work. Why this emphasis on rest? Well, certainly there is a practical element to it. God knows his creation. Taking a break is a good thing. But there was a deeper reality to this principle of rest. You see, the Sabbath was meant to point people back to God. It was meant to remind them of God's work to save them from their enemies in Egypt that they might rest in him. It was meant to remind them that God was going to continually provide for them that they might put their hope and confidence and rest in him. It was meant to remind them because they were God's people, their confidence shouldn't be in anything but God himself, that they should rest in him. But what happens when something good becomes twisted and abuse. What happens when a gift of rest gets turned into a means of working for spiritual maturity? That was the problem of the Pharisees, and it's very much a problem today. Yet as with every problem we face in this world and in our lives, Jesus is the solution. But first we have to see that we have a problem. And so as we begin to understand and apply these verses, the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus reveals spiritual legalism. Jesus reveals spiritual legalism. Luke tells us that it was on a Sabbath while Jesus was going to the grain fields that his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Oh, that seems innocent enough. But then some of the Pharisees say to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Did they break the law that God had given Israel? From the reaction of the Pharisees, as we seek to understand what legalism is and why it is a problem, we first see legalism's confusion. Legalism's confusion. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and those with them, uh, the, 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 the scribes and so many of the religious leaders, they had made keeping the law an exact science. They not only knew the law given by God, but they also came up with their own commandments and traditions that would help them keep the law of God. For example, the rabbis debated the eating of eggs on the Sabbath. Specifically, if you go out on the Sabbath and there is an egg under the hen, can you eat it or not? 
The question came down to, did the hen do work and produce the egg on the Sabbath, or was it there from the day before? This was a real debate that they would have. Some believed that if you ate the egg that was produced on the Sabbath, you were complicit in the work and therefore you were violating the Sabbath. So the question was, do you go out on the Sabbath, do you get this egg and say, God, thank you for this gift and go make your omelet? Or do you say, I don't know, that that hen might have made it today and if I eat this egg, I'm going to be breaking the Sabbath and therefore wait until the next day to partake of that egg. There's more. What if during her afternoon walk, Grandma fell down on the field and was injured and couldn't get up? They don't, they don't have the little beep, 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 beep necklaces back then. The question was, were you able to take something like a litter or a stretcher out and put it together and put Grandma on it and carry her back home and care for her injuries? Some said yes, obviously. Others said not so fast. The problem came in this, in carrying the poles out for the stretcher where grandma lay, you might actually drop one, piercing the earth, putting a hole in the ground, and therefore be guilty of plowing a field on the Sabbath, something explicitly forbidden by God. So the debate was, was it better to go and to help grandma and risk breaking the Sabbath, or just to wait until the Sabbath was done and then go help grandma? Both of those examples are not made up. Those are real debates that Jewish teachers... And, and Pharisees were having in Jesus' day. And in the midst of this, suddenly Jesus and his disciples are thrown into the mix. Why? Because as the disciples were walking through a field, they came to the edge, they picked off some heads of grain, they ran it between their fingers, and they ate the wheat and threw the chaff away. Now what was the problem? Were they stealing? Was that the issue that they were stealing the Sabbath? No, because Deuteronomy 23, the provision is made within the law for that kind of uh, casual munching. Uh, particularly for the poor, but really for anybody to go along the edge of a field and grab some, some grains of wheat. It was fine. Why? Because the wheat didn't belong to the farmer. The wheat belonged to God. He is the one that put it there. And although there was no endorsement of, of uh, large harvesting on the Sabbath or even large stealing from somebody else, the, the, the idea that you could just go and, and pick off a few heads and eat, fine, no problem. Not breaking the law. However, however, they were breaking the traditions. The disciples were not were not there to work. They were not trying to sneak in some extra labor uh, for the harvest. They were itinerant, itinerant preachers grabbing a snack. But they broke not the law of the Sabbath, but the traditions that the Pharisees had. They had come up with their own rules. In fact, 39 rules about what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. And one of them was this very thing. By plucking the head of the wheat, they were considered to be harvesting on the Sabbath. And here we need to see what is the first step towards legalism. Confusing thus says the Lord with thus says me. Confusing the clear, direct commands of Scripture with anything else, no matter how well-intentioned it might be. Whether it's advice and instruction of godly people designed to help help you keep the clear commands of Scripture, or whether it's a tradition handed down from family or friends or leadership. That confusion often leads to conceit. This is the second thing that we see here. Legalism's conceit. Notice the assumption that Jesus is wrong. 
They don't ask him what he's doing, how he understands the Sabbath command. They don't ask him to engage in some kind of debate. They just show up and say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Even given the culture of debate and discourse about was and was it legal, you would think that they would be a little humble about it. Not everyone agrees. So let's, let's be mindful of that. But no, here they stand full of pride. Before Jesus. In fact, it's even more clear when he's at the synagogue. After all, in the field, you don't really know what Jesus' interaction is like with these guys. Perhaps they were actually seeking to learn from Jesus. Perhaps that, that they were following after him as they're taking this walk and they were simply caught off guard by what they saw. Didn't conform to their pattern. Or perhaps they were following Jesus. Perhaps they were watching him, trying to catch him out on something. We don't know, but we do know in the next story, in the synagogue. Luke says explicitly in verse 6, the the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. The conceit, the pride of these men is palpable. They are sure that Jesus is wrong and they are right and they're looking for any chance to show him up. He doesn't conform to their way of thinking and living and keeping the law, so let's just nail him to the wall. That's the arrogance that is produced by legalism. And and frankly, we still see that kind of thing today, don't we? It is one thing to stand clearly and firmly on God's word when there is great clarity on what God has said is right and wrong on the commandments that he has given. Uh, It's very difficult, particularly on issues of human sexuality today. To stand with boldness and say, God has made it clear in his word that this act, this mentality, this lobby is wrong. We do not hate people who engage in it. We love them. But it is nevertheless wrong and sinful. And we cannot, as an institution, endorse this. That, 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 that's one thing, right? It's quite another to take something that, that God has not made clear... And hold on to it so firmly that it becomes the standard of salvation for everybody else in the church. What kind of clothes should you wear? God is very clear that his people are to dress modestly. But he's not clear on the specific kinds of clothes. So so you will never find someone in this church pulling out the tape measure. Saying, I don't know. That might be an inch too far above the ankle on the hem of that skirt. No good. Or insisting on pants or on something else or whatever. We're just not going to do that. Why? Because God has not made clear. It is up to us to say we desire to obey the command to be modest and therefore determine what is and what is appropriate. Some people are going to make decisions that we disagree with. Some people will be more conservative than we are going to be. The question is, are we being driven by a motivation to obey God's command or are we simply desiring to be better than the person next to us. See, that's the tendency of legalism. To think that our conviction is God's standard and therefore appropriate for everybody. What about what you watch on television or in theaters? God is clear that we should fill our minds with whatever is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, of anything of excellence or worthy of praise. That's Philippians 4.8. But he has not made it clear if that means... No television at all, or a little bit of television with discernment. No theater going at all, or a little bit of theater going with discernment. Or what happens if, you know, this was my favorite. Uh, a friend in seminary, who, who was a friend, <laughs> and we had some conversations, he says, oh no, we don't own a television. 
too much bad stuff on television. I said, okay, that's cool. But sitting next to their laptop was a pile about this high from Blockbuster, full of R-rated movies. And, and I, I said to him, you know, we own a television. We enjoy watching things. And I guarantee you, 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 in this pile, there's more smut and debauchery than I've seen on television in months. All combined. Right? So, so it's not about the legalistic rule of, well, can't have no television because we're just as tempted to, to go and find somewhere else. The question is, are we seeking to obey God's command and have we come to a firm conviction for ourselves about what is acceptable and not acceptable when we have this thing? Okay? Thankfully, this has not been an issue uh, here, but I know some other churches have been torn to shreds over this question. How do I educate my children? What has God decreed? We must, as God's people, raise our children in fear and admonition of the Lord. But does that mean I do that publicly or privately or in my home? Some come to a clear conviction, and that becomes the standard by which all other Christians are judged. And if you do not believe what I believe, then you're not really a Christian. That's legalism. Nevertheless, as Paul says, all of us should be convinced in our own minds what is the good and godly right thing to do. Right? So my point is on all these things, and we could go, we could spend the rest of the afternoon giving examples. God has given clear directions, but the way in which those are practically lived out in the midst of life and the options that we have today, let alone what Jesus had, are not always clear. And this is where God's spirit and God's word and the wisdom and humility before those things comes into play, whereby we say, this is the clear command. And if you are violating this clear command, you are in sin. However, I think this is the best way to apply this. And if you are attempting to apply it and it looks a little bit differently, I, I may disagree with you, but I'm not going to cast you out of the people of God. I, I'm not going to believe that you are somehow sub-Christian while I stand as the perfection and the standard of all righteousness. That's the danger in so many of these things is that our correct application of God's command is equal to God's command. That leads to arrogant conceit in our hearts and towards others, and it's sinful. We've seen legalism's confusion and conceit. Finally, we need to understand legalism's corruption. Legalism's corruption. Here's the thing. Lots of people throw around the term legalism today, but the reality is much of what we identify as being legalistic isn't really legalism. So you, you can have confusion... You can have conceit, as we've seen in this passage, and not be a legalist. There are people who are confused and conceited about their interpretation of the Bible, but they've not attained the level of legalists. But legalism always begins with confusion and conceit. So you can have the first two without being a legalist, but you will never find a legalist without those first two. What makes someone a true legalist is the corruption of God's plan to save. Remember what we saw last week in just a few verses before this in chapter 5? Jesus accused the Pharisees of seeing themselves as righteous rather than sinful. That's the key. That's the key. They think they've worked hard and will continue to work hard to be made right with God rather than seeing themselves as so desperately wicked that they need a savior to rescue them, a doctor to heal them, and a king to lead them. Legalism isn't about having rules or limits or disciples receiving instruction on how to live. It's not giving or receiving godly and biblical counsel on how to apply God's clear commands. Those are all good things that the Bible itself commends. 
But legalism perverts those good things and makes them essential to salvation. So, as Ray Ortland explains, legalism is diminishing the finished work of Christ on the cross, adding something of our own to the empty hands of faith as the way of receiving that finished work. It is requiring more than the cross received by mere faith for peace with God. Simply put, legalism is a way of making and keeping yourself acceptable to God. It's you doing something that leads to your salvation, with or without Jesus Christ. The sad reality is that at our, in our core, in our hearts, all of us are legalists. All of us have that tendency to want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to want to work really hard and improve our life. And there's... There's something right and good about discipline and hard work, but when it comes to our relationship with God, it doesn't work. It never works. We will never be able to do something to make God love us or accept us. We try. Many of us try. But in that trying, we end up enslaving ourselves to a vicious cycle of trying harder and failing, always hardening in our view of self-righteousness and moving further from the humility that we need to really find peace with God by acknowledging nothing that we do will make us right. We need the work of Christ. But there is good news for legalists. There is good news for legalists. Jesus brings spiritual freedom. This is the second thing that we see in our passage. Jesus brings spiritual freedom. In the first instance, Jesus responds to the Pharisees by appealing to Scripture. Now, we will see this over and over again as we move through Luke's Gospel, just as we see it in the other Gospels. And I just want to to make the point, Jesus was a Bible man. What he taught and how he lived his life flowed from the Word of God. And that is in, in so many ways an inescapable example to us. So many people today, when you talk to them and they're, they're not involved in church, they say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't really care for the Bible. Because, you know, that was written by people and it's corrupted and blah, blah, blah. Jesus quoted the Bible. I mean, even if you just take the 39 books that was Jesus' Bible at the time, he, he lived by that book. He embodied its teaching. He quoted from it, referred to it, respected all parts of it. That means that spiritual freedom is not about moving away from instruction in the word. Real freedom comes as we move deeper into a right understanding and instruction of God's word. Our goal in freedom is never the lessening of obedience to God. That's not freedom. That's another kind of slavery to sin. Our obedience to God's law begins, though, with this reality, that Jesus fulfills God's law. This is the first thing that we see here and the big thing that the Pharisees missed. Jesus fulfills God's law. The Pharisees, they loved the Bible. Frankly, they probably loved it more than many of us. They had large portions of it memorized and they desperately sought to obey it. But they didn't understand Not only the the heart and soul of the Bible, but how to properly obey it and apply it. They missed the heart of it. Jesus will later accuse them, you search the scriptures, but you don't find me. That's the point. When you read through those first 39 books, ultimately, Jesus comes in front of you and you say, wait a minute. Jesus is excellent. This is about him. This is about Jesus. The the whole thing is about him. And that's not what the Pharisees saw. 
And this is what led them to be legalists, captive to working and working and working instead of just resting in the provision that God had made. He says to them, verse 3, Have you not read? They say, Why are your disciples picking the grain and breaking the Sabbath? And here's Jesus' response. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. Now, Jesus was referring to a story recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. And uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are some of my all-time favorite books in the Bible. I would love to stop and give you uh, a, just a, a massive sweep of the whole thing, but we don't have time. There's a too much. Let me sum up. Okay? The nation of Israel at this point, 1 Samuel 21, has demanded a king like all the other nations. Making such a demand meant they have rejected God as their king, and they would prefer to put their confidence and hope in a human man. They wanted a human being as king, not God. So God gives them what they want. This is an example of, be careful what you pray for. Sometimes God may give it to you and you'll be miserable. Follow Jesus' example. God, this is what I think I need, but your will be done. You know better than me. God gives them exactly what they want, a king like the other nations, and he is terrible. His name is Saul. He is an inept, foolish, wicked man. And his reign does not end well. For his disregard of God's clear command, God strips the kingdom from his hands and says, you will not have a house, a lasting house. The the dynasty of Saul will not reign on the throne of Israel. It ends with you after only 40 years. Meanwhile, God sends the prophet Samuel to go and to anoint not the people's choice for king, but God's choice for king. A young man named David. And in fact, we have this great juxtaposition where the spe- the empow- God's empowering presence for the king of Israel, a spirit of leadership, comes off of Saul and lands on David, showing the anointing of God, his hand on this man's life. Now, here's the problem. David's on the throne. Be years before David is on the throne because the fullness of Saul's sin is not complete. He loses his mind. He tries to hunt down David and kill him. And so for years, David is on the run. He's actually, amazingly, doing the things that that Saul should be doing as king. He's defeating uh, all of the enemies of God in the outlying areas of Israel. The thing that Saul should be out there doing. David's already doing. And yet Saul is trying to hunt him down and kill him. And it's in that context that we find 1 Samuel 21. David is on the run, fleeing for his life. It has been days since they've eaten. He is famished. He comes upon the tabernacle and he says, Please, you've got to give us some food. And the priest says, we don't have any food here. All we have is, is the showbread, the, the bread of the presence. And only the priest can eat that. And David says, but, but my men and I are, are, are starving. We need help. And the priest has an option, doesn't he? Because the law has clearly forbid that anyone but the priest eat this bread. It was symbolized, 12 loaves, it symbolized Israel, the 12 tribes dwelling in the midst of the presence of God. And the priest as the intercessor, as the mediator, he, they were to be the ones, after it set out for the week in God's presence, they would put the fresh loaves on and they would go and they would consume the leftover loaves, the ones that were taken away, demonstrating their mediatorial role. So it was inappropriate for anyone but the priest to do this. And yet, here is David and his men. And what happens? The priest gives them the bread. Not only are they in need of food and starving, this is the Lord's anointed. Now, Jesus just lets it hang out there. He says, what about this? 
What were the Pharisees supposed to take away from that? First of all, he's showing them their whole approach to Scripture is wrong. Their whole approach to the Bible is wrong because they are, they are so worried about the minutia of keeping the law and specifically the Sabbath command, they miss the fact that they are not keeping the larger command to love your neighbor as yourself. That command is more important than the Sabbath command. That's the reason why the priest gave David the bread. This is not only the Lord's anointed, it is a man, it is, is a fellow Israelite, it is a human being in need. Therefore, the command to love my neighbor takes precedent over the command to not give him the bread on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees didn't get that. They're so meticulous to the point that they're tithing out their spices. Can you imagine going home on Saturday night and pulling out your salt and your pepper and your cumin and your majori and all whatever you have there and, and say, okay, we've got to get a tenth of this out. And you get out little scales and stuff and you come and you put that in an offering plate? I'm sorry, it would stink in here. Don't do that. But the Pharisees were so meticulous in tithing, that's what they're doing. But then they find all these loopholes to, to, to dedicate their finances to the Lord. So that way when their parents get old and are sick and need help, they say, well, I can't give you that money. It's dedicated to the God's work. Or as we'll see in a minute, a man with a withered hand. And they say, no, no, I, I can't do anything for you. It's the Sabbath. Jesus says, you are straining, at a, straining out a gnat from your water, but you're swallowing the camel. You are missing the point. You do not understand how to understand the scriptures because ultimately they point to me, to me. More importantly, he's saying, if it was okay for David and his men to break this law, then certainly it is okay for me and my disciples to break your traditions. Because I am far greater than David. I am David's greater son. I am even the son of man, the very Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? That means, at least in part, he can give the kind of rest, spiritual rest, that the physical rest of the Sabbath is pointing to. Jesus comes, and like all the law, he fulfills the law of the Sabbath. The physical command to stop doing work pointed to a spiritual reality that we stop striving to earn our salvation. We stop working for God's acceptance and we just rest in the fact that He has provided salvation. So it makes all the sense in the world later as Jesus looks out at these people striving to bear the legalistic burden of the Pharisees that He stands in their midst and He calls out to them, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does it mean that we don't care about holiness if we're Christ's disciples? No! But it flows from love for God, not striving to get love from God. Christ says, I'm here as a display that God loves you. God already loves you and He has forgiven you when you put your faith in Me. Therefore, the burden is gone and you can rest in Me. How do we enter that rest? Again, by ceasing to strive to earn God's favor and by trusting in Jesus' finished work to bring us to God. Now, how can Jesus offer that rest? How can He provide it? How can He be the fulfillment of the Sabbath command? Because secondly, He embodies God's authority. He embodies God's authority. When Jesus says He is Lord of the Sabbath, He doesn't just mean He comes to fulfill it. He means the entire principle of Sabbath rest flows from Him and His character. 
Jesus does not come to keep a Sabbath law given to Israel. Jesus comes and lives in such a way that the Sabbath law is displayed in who he is and what he does. So when he enters that synagogue on another Sabbath, and the Pharisees are watching him, seeking to trap him into doing something, and God reveals that to him, he knows the intentions of their heart. He wants to point out to them the utter sinfulness of their thoughts. And so he sees this man with a withered hand. And Jesus stands up and he says, come here and stand here. And this guy gets up and you know immediately they think it's on. This is it. We've got him. Jesus puts this guy right in the center of the room for all to see in the synagogue. And he looks around the Pharisees. And I, I, I have to imagine that there's a hardness to the edge in his voice. When he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And he looks at them. And all he gets back is stone cold impassive, heartless looks. These are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. That's what they they claim to be for themselves, and yet they are far from God. All of these men who are supposedly pious and, and loving God and worshiping Him on the Sabbath are doing no such thing. The Apostle John makes it clear that you cannot say, I love God whom you have not seen, and yet not love His people whom you have seen. They didn't care for this man. They didn't love their neighbor. They were only there to use him as a weapon to accuse Jesus of sin. But Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. He knew what the Sabbath was for. It's not about extra regulations for God's people to earn his favor. It's about showing mercy, knowing that you have been shown mercy. And so as the Pharisees stand back, stare back at him silent. He says to this man, with this, this withered, decrepit man, the word literally means that, that it's, it's shrunken and shriveled. And he tells that man, stretch out your hand. Here's a guy who's probably for years never been able to stretch out that hand, yet at, at Christ's command. Like a balloon being inflated, suddenly the muscles and the bones and the tendons come back into place and the man's hand is restored. Could you imagine seeing something like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we see stuff on television and special effects, but to, 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 to see them, to know, to be this man's friend, to be sitting next to him, to see Jesus say, stretch out that hand. And he does it, it's healed. And you just, you, you think the Pharisees are going to get it, the lights are going to go on. Look at this man in our midst. Luke says, he stretched out his hand, but... It's an intentional contrast. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The man's hand is restored, but their hearts are not restored. They are hardened. But why are they upset? Well, why are they so, so blind with rage? Literally, the, the word furious means, means insane with anger and murderous intent. Why? Is it because he broke the Sabbath? No. At the end of the book, when Jesus is on trial, nobody ever says, and he broke the Sabbath. Now it's because of his claim to authority. He has said he is Lord of the Sabbath. If he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is giver of the Sabbath. If he is giver of the Sabbath, then he is God in the flesh in their midst. That's what he's claiming before them. They did not have eyes to see that this was true, and so it was blasphemy to them. But we must understand today, Jesus is no mere good teacher. 
He is no mere insightful prophet. He is no spiritual guru to help you rebuild your life. Jesus is nothing less than the very Son of God. And the anger displayed here will build over the coming years until Jesus is arrested and tried and convicted and crucified and dies. But Jesus will not stay dead because on the cross he was not hanging there as a blasphemer or the victim of the Pharisees' hatred and plotting. Jesus was hanging there as the Savior of the world, bearing God's wrath against the sins of his people. And so when Jesus is raised back to life after the cross, he is raised back to life as the Son of Man. Not just Lord of the Sabbath, but Lord of all things. One who has all authority, he says, in heaven and on earth. Until you believe that reality, your soul will never find rest. Never. Augustine of Hippo was a man who tried to find fulfillment in just about everything. From philosophy to religion to unbridled hedonism, Augustine tried to find satisfaction for his soul and he always came up short. Until one day, his mother's prayers were answered and he came to faith in Christ. Here's a man who lived his entire life running from the religion of his mother. He tried anything and everything he could possibly get his hands on thinking this will bring me happiness and nothing did until he found Christ. And here's what he said as he years later reflected back on his experience. He said, you made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Today, Jesus stands still as Lord of The Sabbath, looking to all of us, whether we are legalists at heart, struggling Christians, or simply lost in sin. He stands before us, offering the same hope as he did one day almost 2,000 years ago in the dusty roads of Palestine. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Today, may we rest in Christ. Although that is our prayer this morning as we have seen the reality of Jesus and who He is and how He not only fulfills the Sabbath, God, but fulfills the meaning of it, bringing rest for our souls. God, He is the Son of Man who has authority over all things, even authority over us. So, Father, as we stand here this morning, we really only have two options. That is to recognize His authority, to recognize His his claim over our life as our Creator, and to fly to Him and make Him our Savior, to stop working and striving and to find rest for our weary souls, experiencing forgiveness of sins and acceptance with You. Or, God, we can continue to rebel. We can continue to live lives of legalism, thinking that our works will make us right with you, that we will be able to live lives good enough that you will accept us on the basis of what we do. God, that will provide no rest for our souls, but simply heap more judgment upon us on the final day. So God, I pray for all of us here, whether we, whether we have believed for years or whether there is one here who has never believed in Christ, that today we all look to him in faith and find rest for our weary souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.